Last year in our ETF uh, sustainability products, we had $12 billion of flow for the entire year. Uh, in the first six months, we had $17 billion of flows. Our clients are looking to invest in more renewable, sustainable products. And I don't think there's anything wrong about asking for better disclosure. This is Governance Matters, a podcast for corporate secretaries. I'm Taylor Hughes. And I'm Jeff Cassette. On today's program, ESG Matters. The one thing that is very clear in this COVID world that we're living in, stakeholder capitalism is only going to become more and more important. It's no secret that ESG issues are having a growing influence on investor behavior. Enormous sums continue to pour into a spectrum of investment vehicles with environmental, social, and governance agendas. For corporate governance teams, the proliferation of nominally responsible, socially purposeful, or green asset managers presents both risks and opportunities. Ignore their expectations, and you might expect not only a higher cost of capital, but also a slew of unwelcome consequences on the proxy front. And the pandemic, poverty, and gaping cultural divisions have turned out fecund ground for the growth of a new set of investor issues. All signs point to ESG, emphasis on the S part, impacting next year's proxy voting in ways never before seen. Fortunately, we've got one of the country's top proxy trend authorities on the show today to help us figure it all out. Bridget Rosati is Managing Director for Business Development and Corporate Strategy at Georgeson. She'll be in to give us a rundown on last year's top shareholder proxy proposals and voting results, and emerging priorities for next year. But first, we check in with Martin Jarzabowski. As Director of ESG and Responsible Investing at Pittsburgh-based Federated Hermes, he oversees one of the world's most sophisticated ESG stewardship and investing operations. In a world where exclusion and divestiture remain the most common path for ESG investors to take, Federated Hermes, with over $630 billion worth of assets under management, trods a different route to Alpha. Jarzabowski says that route, which integrates fundamental analysis with active, high-intensity ESG engagement, gives Federated Hermes fund managers a competitive edge, helping them uncover what he calls ESG momentum and mispriced ESG value. Federated acquired UK-based Hermes in 2018. I began our conversation by asking Martin about some of the cultural and practical challenges involved in embedding ESG factors into the investment process across the new organization. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. Um, so, really, the you know the journey for us as a as an entity started a, a couple of years ago in the sense that. When we acquired Hermes uh, International, um, they really were the gold standard in in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, they were a founding signatory of the uh, the UN PRI. 
Uh, they have decades of experience in ESG integration. They were pioneers in active engagement and stewardship. Yeah. And so it, it really shows because you see um, the level of ESG subject matter expertise, um, kind of the depth of the breadth, but also being able to house all of this information in our own proprietary databases um, where we have one of the largest engagement databases over 15 years old, uh, covering over 18,000 corporate issuers. Um, and that really kind of comes to, to the heart of being able to take this information and, and being able to integrate it on a firm-wide basis across all asset classes, all investment teams. So whether it's equities, fixed income, uh, liquidity, money markets, alternatives, or private markets, it's not really kept in a silo. Rather, it's something that if you believe that ESG is a valuable component within the risk mitigation process that, that you have, um, then why wouldn't you want to have it across all of the, the different asset classes and have it embedded in the DNA of the different investment processes. Um, so that's really the, the journey that, that we embarked on. And we wanted to make sure that it was done in a, in a very thorough and authentic way. And so it's not a light switch moment. It takes uh, years to be able to create a customized and bespoke integration process for the different teams because, as you can imagine, they all have um, their own investment frameworks. And you want to make ESG a natural extension of the primary research that they already do. It's got to be something that is additive to their investment process. Um, and so, you know, this is something that uh, when, when you take a step back, you, you have to make sure that you've got the right people in place. You have to have um, the skill sets and, and the pedigree uh, behind it. You have to dedicate the time and the resources uh, in order to make sure that this is something that's authentic and, and not just cosmetic in nature. And, and yeah, right. And, and you have to do that because you're getting customer pressure, but you also have to sort of communicate to the individual portfolio managers that you can get alpha from, from ESG initiatives. Um, I, I guess you essentially have to show them empirical academic research, um, or is it just kind of a given it's almost by this point in time, it's, it's, it's become obvious. No, you know, I think there there always is apprehension because historically speaking, when you mentioned ESG or you mentioned uh, sustainable investing, I think most investors, they immediately default to a view or a stigma that the sacrifice has to be made. And mm -hmm. if you're going to have ESG as part of your investment process, then some form or fashion, uh, that's going to come at the expense of alpha or uh, investment returns. And very quickly, you're starting to see the evidence show today that that's really, it's not the case. Uh, historically, I think a lot of that volatility of, of performance has come from more exclusionary strategies, which remove entire sectors or industries from an investable universe. And so as a result, you can imagine your uh, outcomes are going to deviate relative to a benchmark. It may uh, sometimes that that could improve performance certainly, um, but at other times you certainly can experience 
greater volatility or greater deviation from the benchmark that is unfavorable in nature. Okay. So now when you're thinking about ESG integration and you're thinking about the tools, you're very quickly starting to see evidence unfold that ESG is simply becoming the new quality factor, right? You're able to see that uh, companies, corporates, uh, issuers that are doing a better job from what is relevant and financially material in their particular industry, uh, they are seeing greater long-term value creation, and you are starting to, to see that associated with better performance. Uh, the other thing that I would mention is the way that people think about evaluating performance in ESG also is evolving. So it's not that you're just investing in it in what everyone considers to be an ESG leader, um, and that's opening up Pandora's box. We can go in many di- different directions there. But it's actually you're seeing more semblance of outperformance in ESG momentum, meaning an entity who currently might be underappreciated by the marketplace or by third-party data providers, mm. and they're actually going in the right direction, and they have momentum, they have velocity uh, behind this improvement in their sustainability, which may not be accurately reflected in the marketplace. That is a great source of what I call identifying mispriced ESG risk. And if you're able to have the right resources and capabilities in order to unearth those opportunities, that's what you're starting to see is very additive from more of a traditional investment performance attribute. That's interesting. Let me see if I understand. These are companies that are are not adequately communicating um, uh, the opportun- their ESG opportunities, uh, mostly, I presume, to the market and, and are, are undervalued uh, from an ESG point of view? Yeah, think of it this way. If you uh, traditionally, you're a credit analyst and you're looking at a particular corporate issuer and they are rated by a third-party agency and just keep it very simplistic, A, B, or C. Uh, the same logic applies for ESG third-party data sets. They, they have ratings, they have rankings. And what if you have a scenario where you see a particular corporate issuer and they're currently rated a B and you are evaluating them, you're performing due diligence, um, you are directly engaging with that board of directors, with that C-suite, and you really start to unearth uh, some very interesting ESG insights in the sense that the third-party data provider might have something that's a little bit more backward-looking, a little more reactive, right? Because they're just looking at the company's website or they're looking at the, uh, you know, the, the filings, and, and some of that information can certainly be dated. So if you're more proactive and you're going directly to the source, you have a better handle on where that company has been uh, and, and also where they're going on their sustainability journey. So if you believe that you know, that that entity uh, in the future is going to be considered more of an, an A-rated ESG company, uh, that really is the you know the, um, the the proof of where you could potentially identify mispriced ESG risk in, in the marketplace. The reality is that the, the third-party data providers were designed for corporate disclosure aggregation and not for alpha generation. So if you're yeah. an investor and, and you're looking at this mosaic of information, you, you really want to start to 
find the best utility out of that. So the, the way that we go about doing that is not just looking at one third-party data provider, but looking at a multiple, right, to be able to combine all these different data sources because certain third-party data providers are better at environmental information. Others are better at gathering governance information. So we want to work with the leading third-party data sets, analyze them, put them together in a multi-factor model in order to really get a nice, concise digest of how the marketplace is looking at this particular corporate issuer. So every single one of our investment analysts and portfolio managers right on their desktop, they've got a proprietary ESG dashboard that was built by us for us, and it breaks down that particular corporate entity uh, into multiple different factors and dimensions. And that allows you to start the due diligence process. You've, no, exactly. As I understand it, and I'm just reading actually your, your news releases here, it looks like you've quintupled your, your, your sustainability team um, I, I, by a vast amount in the last year. Yes, and, and that's exactly where, you know, where I think the, the puck is headed from an authentic ESG due diligence process. Hmm. You have to go beyond the ratings. You have to have the investment team start to think about what's relevant and financially material in the particular sectors and industries that they invest in and specialize in. But then you have to take that one step further, is you need to have robust in-house ESG subject matter expertise. And what I mean by that is when you are, let's say you're engaging with a particular corporate issuer, most people just think of engagement as proxy voting engagement or um, something that they do seasonally or it's a letter writing campaign, right? It's, um, it's something that can actually be very reactive. Maybe they're just waiting for the corporates to come to them. We take the opposite approach. We think of engagement as being proactive, right? So we have assembled one of the largest teams of ESG subject matter experts, and they are not from the financial uh, backgrounds, right? They're not CFAs or MBAs. They're more climate change experts. They are lawyers. They come from sustainability offices of Fortune 500 companies. So when they're engaging with a board or with a C-suite, they have a very complementary perspective. And the beauty of that is you are then able to compare that and cross-pollinate it with the fundamental investment perspective, right? So I like to think of it as two heads are better than one. One entity is very good at uh, you know meeting and engaging with a company's IR and, and with a company's CFO uh, to really understand uh, the, you know the more traditional fundamental view. Uh, you also have a proxy voting team that obviously is very focused in on on that every every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have this third pillar of ESG engagement, and that is done by ESG subject matter experts. So that's why when you put it all together, I like to frame it up as a 360-degree engagement. You have proxy voting engagement, you have fundamental engagement, and you have ESG engagement. And each one of those requires different skill sets. And so we really are able to, at the end of the day, um, look at this information in totality, look at it and get a very comprehensive view because the, the specific backgrounds of the individuals that are gathering and performing the, this due diligence, when they come together, that's something that is, is extremely additive to our investment process. 
So, so how did they work specifically together then, Martin? Uh, the engagement teams and the investment teams, do they, uh, the engagement teams will come back and say, I don't know, um, Company X is really doing well on their, I don't know, water pollution efforts. Uh, it's not even in their yearbook, not their yearbook, but their annual report. Um, the investment team should take this into account kind of thing. That's a very crude example, but is that kind of the, the direction? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll give you some very concrete examples. So we want a formal and systematic integration of engagement with our investment process. And, and that really entails a, um, uh, an approach that you can start to see the direct interaction. For example, let's say you have a pharmaceutical engager and you have a pharmaceutical uh, fundamental analyst. Being able to have them meet and, and discuss, one is bringing that fundamental perspective to the table, the other one is bringing that ESG subject matter expertise to the table, and both of them are able to better their understanding of some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world as a result. And through that interaction, you know, it's, it's something where the uh, ESG subject matter expert is, is engaging with that pharmaceutical company and, and you know, some of the leaders within that space, um, but they're doing it at a different vantage point, right? They're not necessarily always just meeting with investor relations mm. or the CFO, which tends to be the normal channel for a fundamental analyst. They're meeting with directors. They're meeting with the sustainability officers. Um, they're meeting with different individuals within that corporate entity, again, in order to get a, a really good and comprehensive view. I'm and pardon my, pardon me, I just missed you there, yeah. but we're talking about, say, portfolio manage, individual portfolio managers, not necessarily the engagement uh, people. So what, no, what, what I, the example I was just giving is the, the specific engagers okay, okay. Um, that, that work with that corporate entity. And, and you'll hear me say work with. That's something that I also want to underscore here is that, you know, it's not activism and it's not seasonal. It's not just during proxy voting and it's not a letter writing campaign. Our definition of engagement and stewardship is a collaborative dialogue with the different members of that corporate entity or that issuer, parent, sponsor, obligor. It doesn't just have to be corporates. It can be a government-sponsored entity. It can be a municipality. You name it. Um, the point here is that it is long-term, it is collaborative in order to really be able to have a better understanding of the ESG risks and opportunities of that issuer, of that entity, and see you know, where potentially there, or there's some disconnect with how the market is viewing that, that entity, but also it's to be able to have a seat at the table and being able to advocate for, for positive change. Hmm. Right? So it's, it's much more consultative in nature. We, it's not something that we look at and we say, oh, we're just going to meet with this um, management team once a year or once every other year. We want to have a continuous and high-touch dialogue that is consistent because at the end of the day, that benefits the, the corporate entity to be able to provide our perspective on what's relevant and material for them. And I know a lot of corporates are, are obviously searching for answers in order to reconcile what they believe are so many different demands that are placed on them from an ESG reporting standpoint. 
Um, and so it's something where if you have a frequent and collaborative dialogue, that provides us with a much better perspective on the quality of that issuer. It provides us with a perspective of where they've been and where they're going on their sustainability journey. And then all of this really culminates, I think, in a, in a win-win-win scenario because the investment team is able to, to benefit uh, from having a, a better perspective about that issuer. Um, obviously, the engagers working with that issuer uh, in, in order to help them along that path and along that journey. And all of this really culminates in, in uh, a better um, impact for broader society as a whole. Huh. How common is, is that kind of uh, active approach in, in the fund management industry these days? I think it's actually rather uncommon. And that's because I think it's very rare to see a large asset manager have a dedicated in-house engagement and stewardship division of our size, hmm. right? Uh, typically, what you'll see is maybe one or two individuals, not a full team uh, that is organized by ESG themes, regions, and sectors and industries, right? That requires uh, scale, time, resources, and, and real dedication, to execute something like that. So it's actually very few and far between uh, in the marketplace. Um, many asset managers are simply outsourcing a lot of this uh, work to sort of third-party um, providers. And, and I think that that starts to become a, a key source of differentiation between the asset managers who have proprietary in-house capabilities versus the mainstream, which is simply outsourcing all their ESG research to third-party data providers. That's the most common entry. It's the lowest cost uh, right. of entry, whereas direct engagement and stewardship, you have to think about the scale sets in the backgrounds and how long it would take to amass a division like this. That's why Hermes did such an excellent job as being pioneers in the space um, because this has been a, you know, now we're talking about a 20-year journey here. Huh. Um, so it's not something that you can just form overnight. Uh, the other so, thing so, is that so, you'll, you'll... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Don't lose that thought, but I, just to interject, um, so, so companies work now to check boxes on these third-party uh, providers um, just as a general prophylactic, I guess. But, but then you come and knock on their door and and you've got a completely different philosophy. I guess sometimes you get pushback. I'm just playing devil's advocate, but I'm wondering is that is that how it goes? <laughs> so I, I'll I'll frame it this way. I think that they there's uh, sometimes a misconception, and that's because you're seeing the way that people frame engagement is in different shapes and sizes. So the initial reaction when uh, I think most corporates hear about engagement and stewardship, they first, they default and they think that this is only shareholder centric, meaning that they assume that it's for proxy voting purposes. Mm -hmm. That's number one. So number two is if you're describing, you're saying, no, it's not just for proxy voting. Um, this is for you know real uh, due diligence from an, an, an ESG standpoint they immediately assume that it's then, oh, it's going to be the fundamental analyst from the investment team is going to ask them an ES or G question. That's the, the second uh, assumption. And then they start to realize, oh, okay, so the, the person's background is not necessarily coming from the investment 
front, they are coming from an ESG subject matter expert. And they just happen to be a PhD in meteorology or something, and boy, they're in our office. We should talk to them a bit. Exactly. It's a different kind of conversation. So you kind of go through that step function of uh, proxy voting, fundamental, then ESG. It's it's typically those three layers of engagement. Hmm. And so as soon as they start to realize, like, oh, okay, it's not just proxy voting. And, oh, it's not that we have retrained an oil and gas analyst to ask one environmental question uh, of the, the corporation once a year. Or, oh, we're not sending them a letter or sending them a survey. We want to have a collaborative dialogue. Um, I think that actually piques a lot of interest because then almost it's like an opportunity for them to better understand, well, what are, uh, for lack of a better word, best practices for that industry? So when we're engaging with a company, it's not one size fits all. Uh, It's very specialized towards the particular industry in which they're in. Mm -hmm. The engagements are focused on what's relevant and financially material for that industry. So a pharmaceutical company is very different than a utility company. Right. If you're looking at a pharmaceutical company, you have to think about what are they doing more on the social dimension, meaning drug pricing, access to care, design of their clinical trials, human capital management. All of these areas are very relevant and financially material to a pharmaceutical company, and they may be much less so when you're meeting with a utility company. As you can imagine, a, a large uh, power generation, utility, or energy company, um, the environmental pillar is critical to understand their physical asset risk, uh, transitioning, uh, how, how are they making a transition, regulatory dimensions, um, their long-term assumptions for maybe some of the underlying commodities in, in which they deal with. Hmm. All of these things are, are very different. So that's why you need breadth and depth of ESG subject matter expertise. You need to be able to have experts in those particular areas so that then you can really unearth um, more useful insights and keep your finger on the ESG pulse of of that particular company. And kind of exchange insights. I think it's kind of a radical new definition of the relationship (laughs) Uh, um, um, between investors and, and the companies they Yeah. And, you know, know, Jeff, the one other thing that I would mention is I think that engagement and stewardship in general, it's taking almost like a private market mentality and applying it to the public markets. And that is what I think is is very different. You know, when when you're that corporate entity, um, sometimes you have many owners of your security. And again, I'll I'll preface this by saying engagement is not just for uh, shareholders. It's not just for the equity side. It's for the entire capital structure that a large asset owner or a large asset manager is investing in. So it's irrespective of the security type, right? You want to look at the issuer, the parent, the sponsor, the obligor of that security that you're investing in which is why it's so important to go directly to the source and meet with that particular entity to hear their story and to hear it in their words. Very quickly, you'll be able to decipher uh, that entity's journey. uh, How uh, authentic are they in this? Um, Are are they just sort of 
trying to to very quickly assimilate and and you know uh, slap some resources on it because it's a a PR campaign or is it something that they really are mm-hmm. investing in themselves in order to really be able to mitigate these long-term structural risks that are inherent in any one of these different business models. And so that's why it's so important to work with that corporate entity uh, in order to really be on the journey with them. So you, you go there, you, you kick the tires, you actually maybe suggest new tires to the, to the dealer, so to speak, in my analogy. But what happens if uh, they, they ignore you? That, that's what I think is so intriguing about this approach is, you know, if, if you're a corporate entity, uh, you want to be able to work with the asset owner, work with the asset manager. Um, so you should be open and, and have that collaborative dialogue because, you know, the alternative that I think obviously most people are aware of is there's plenty of asset owners and asset managers who are maybe not even asking these questions. They're divesting. They're excluding uh, big portions of the investable universe in order to reflect a, a particular value. So by engaging with the company and by having a collaborative dialogue, it can be a great first option. And it should be something that can be uh, long-term in, in nature in order to have that mutual value creation. Can you, Martin, describe a case where you went in and, and did your thing? Uh, you looked beyond third-party ratings. You collaborated uh, with a, a welcome uh, uh, management team uh, who welcomed you in and, um, and, and, and listened. Is there, is there you know, an ideal set of circumstances that you could, with, maybe without naming names, but uh, kind of go through what, what the process was there? Yeah, no, there, you know, there's many instances where I think you, you start to embark on this collaborative dialogue and the, the issuer, the, you know, that corporate entity, um, they're, they're trying to find their way. They're trying to do the right thing. And so, you know, you're working with the appropriate touch points, whether it's a, a, a member of the board or it's a member of the, the C-suite. And, you, you know, you start to, to see the, the positive change happen. Right, so a good uh, case in point would be you start to bring up these relevant and material ESG issues where you know that entity may or may not be aware of, and they may or may not be aware of what is uh, considered to be best practices within their particular industry, hmm. and as a result, their disclosure, transparency, the way in which they communicate things um, is is really lacking. And that is the explanatory factor as to why the outside world is looking at them with a high degree of skepticism. So, you know, I like to say uh, um, uh, in the ESG world, the closed mouth does not get fed. So there's many corporate entities that could be doing a great job in a particular ESG risk factor that they're really they're doing a great job to mitigate that and navigate it. Um, but they're not really showcasing that or talking about it. So they're not getting credit for it in the marketplace. Um, and that's kind of what I was talking about earlier about that mispriced ESG risk. So after having that dialogue with them, raising these concerns, uh, then what you start to see is a greater commitment by that uh, C-suite, that senior leadership 
to really be able to invoke more positive change as it relates to that relevant and material risk factor. And so you see them make more of a credible commitment and you start to see all of a sudden that positive change unfold. Uh, When that does, then you're able to see the marketplace also tend to uh, digest that information and they get more more credit. It doesn't happen overnight, um, but over time, this starts to become uh, a better understanding of how this entity is navigating this particular structural ESG risk, and then they start to get credit for being able to do a, a, a better job. Right, maybe and because, and because you reached out first, you were in there first, you were able to capture all that upside from <laughs> the market finding the, that mispriced ESG opportunity, which I think will be the, the phrase of Wall Street for 2021. I like that phrase. <laughs> so here, here's the one, one caveat that I, I always have to remind people is that engagement, just like uh, investing and just like a lot of these you know, things that, that happen from a, a positive momentum and, and garnering positive change, it does not happen overnight. It is not something that you are anticipating is going to happen in the next quarter. Sometimes it doesn't even happen over the next year. Mm. That's why I frame it up as a long-term collaborative dialogue because that's what, what it's, it's all about. It's not where you've been, it's where you're going. And so it's being able to you know, work with that corporate entity to better understand them, to be able to advocate for positive change um, at the end of the day, I think that's where you start to see long-term value creation from the corporate entity standpoint, and that helps us translate it uh, to long-term wealth creation for our clients as a large investment manager. Hmm. Yeah, but, and in the meantime, the short, medium term, uh, here we are in the middle of a pandemic. U.S. election came through. Uh, there may be effects on reporting and, and just ESG Initiatives uh, there. The the, uh, the word is the, uh, the the standard wisdom is that this is um, somehow accelerating a change towards uh, towards an investment style more like yours. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, as they say, crises go to waste. But um, who knows? <laughs> I, I totally uh, totally agree with you, Jeff. You know, the one thing that, that I would say, I, I firmly agree that there are uh, tailwinds that are in place with the change in an administration. But in reality, if you go and you look at the, the numbers and you look at the trends, um, the train has left the station before we knew what the U.S. presidential election outcomes were. Mm. So what I mean by that is just one case in point, the amount of capital that has flown to the more sustainably or ESG-oriented investment strategies. Um, the previous administration, it wasn't as if there was a dip. It was actually an acceleration. If you look at the trends over the course of 2018, 2019, it was literally a hockey stick moment for an, an acceleration of capital. Right, despite the administration ESG. almost. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. So... Um, now I just think that you, you see a greater spotlight is, is shined on it. This has transitioned to become much more mainstream. I think that the demand drivers are there. Uh, they're very much in place for a variety of reasons. You see 
changing consumer preferences. You see a generational shift Mm -hmm. in how money is being managed. Um, You see investment managers that are obviously very attuned to that and have to adapt with responsible investing solutions. You see the regulators uh, in different regions around the world are starting to adapt particular types of frameworks. Um, So the momentum behind ESG is here to stay. Now, with a new administration, um, could that accelerate the shift? Uh, I I believe so. And I don't know, I don't uh, really think that that's something that's going to necessarily manifest itself, uh, certainly in 2020, maybe not in 2021, but over the next couple of years, you're going to get a lot more momentum behind the, the, the entire trend that you're seeing here from a variety of areas. So I, I think that ESG is firmly here to stay. I hope so. I um, I agree. I think the uh, there's momentum in that direction. Martin, you're an adjunct professor of sustainable finance. Uh, you speak to uh, the next generation, the future, so to speak, the children. Are they okay? Are they all right? Are we uh, long-term? Uh, are we actually going to use... Uh, capital markets to change society? Yeah, no, the, the, the next generation uh, is certainly okay. Uh, th- this is a new crop of responsible investors and a new breed of responsible corporate leaders. You know, that, that's what I, what I like to, to think of uh, all of the different MBA students and, and master's students that, that I work with and, and that I meet with. Um, they are so keen and so passionate about incorporating sustainability and ESG in everything that they do. So, you know, they're very conscious about the types of products and services that that they consume. So it's really impacting their consumer behavior. Uh, It's something that they want to embed within their career track. Mm -hmm. And they're they're certainly keen on finding different ways of of making that happen. Um, And so... In, in a way, they see the growth of responsible investing products and responsible investing managers uh, as a, a great beacon. Right? They're, they're excited to be able to work for uh, an investment manager who is incorporating this as a firm-wide mission. Right? They, they want to be part of an authentic uh, integration strategy. And so... That's the intersection that they're starting to to notice is they're very keen on the capital markets and um, they they're students of investing and now this uh, ESG component as an overlay it, it really ties in their own personal passion and so there's this great intersection. The other component that that I find so interesting is that you know they're looking at it from the investment vantage point. Um, but they're also keen on being able to work with corporations who also are firmly committed towards their own corporate responsibility. So, I, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot of um, people and, and, and crops of new MBAs that we're going to go down in, into the, the corporate path in, in a particular sector or industry one way or another. Um, but now they may be going to, to work for the sustainability office. Hmm. of that corporation as opposed to one of the other different divisions or one of the other 
uh, job functions. The best and the brightest still being siphoned off to to make money on Wall Street, but going to the ESG office where the real power lies. (laughs) That that may may hold true. So I I think that that's uh, something that's very refreshing. I think that that should uh, really bode well for the way in which Wall Street evolves, um, but also how the the corporate world evolves. And the other thing I'll I'll, um, I'll tie into that mm-hmm. is, you know, ESG is is not something that is um, product specific or even asset class specific, and it's certainly not regional specific. So that's what's so enlightening is when you work with these students, they come from all over the world. So regardless of where they end up geographically, uh, I think that this is going to be just part and parcel with their identity and being able to have them incorporate this in, in their career track uh, wherever they may land. Um, that also is, is something that I think is very positive for, for our future. That's encouraging. Uh, we'll leave it there. Martin Jarzabowski, thanks for joining us on Governance Matters. Absolutely. Thanks for, for having me. You're listening to Governance Matters. This episode is made possible by ComputerShare, world leaders in financial administration, stakeholder communication, and governance services. The world has changed a whole lot recently. Companies must adapt to survive. Understanding your top institutional investors' priorities and the latest trending proxy issues has never been more important. Georgeson's 2020 Annual Corporate Governance Review is a great place to start. Let's join Jeff now in conversation with Report co-author Bridget Rosati. Bridget, what happened in the 2020 proxy season? Can you give us a, a rundown of the... Uh kind of the major ESG topics? Of course, yeah. So from a voting data perspective, the biggest story from the last proxy season that we at Georgeson uncovered in researching for our annual corporate governance review was around support for environmental and social shareholder proposals this past season. Hmm. Overall, support for these environmental-related proposals increased this year. Um, specifically, our report found that of the 162 ENS-related proposals that were voted on at U.S. annual meetings for companies in the S&P 1500 index, a majority of shareholders backed 18 of those. That's up from eight receiving, you know, majority support in 2019 and almost four times as many than what we saw in 2017. Um, and, you know, our clients as well as us were, you know, fairly surprised by, um, that data point and, you know, often the focus in these proxy season reviews spotlights is on governance proposals, but actually this year only 27 governance related proposals received majority support down from 42 in 2019. When we took a closer look at that trend, the, the 18 passing, the overall support levels rising for ENS topics, um, we took a look in part two of our ACGR, which actually came out in November to look specifically at individual vote uh, outcomes by investors. So how did they vote for, against, abstain on these specific proposals? Um, Specifically, we looked at 
sustainability and environmental proposals as well as diversity, as those seem to be fairly popular proposal topics. Um, we noted there's actually little consensus and support among many of the top investors by asset center management. So, for example, we reviewed 15 proposals that were most directly client-related and found that despite Larry Fink's 2020 sustainability and climate change letter, uh, BlackRock was actually least supportive of climate change proposals among the asset managers. Mm. And, um, you know, of the 12 diversity proposals, both that includes both workforce and board-related, um, the range of support for those was 0 to 50% with BlackRock and Capital Group supporting 0 and legal and general supporting half. So in terms of looking back on, on that data, you know, we ask ourselves, what does this mean? Well, one, there's really not a lot of consistent alignment in investor voting policies on these shareholder proposal topics. Right. So while some investors have clearly stated their policies, you know, information about how they would vote presented with an ENS proposal, other investors' language is more vague. Um, more investors actually disclose you know, their voting policies around directors when it comes to ENS topics on certain issues rather than, you know, specific information about shareholder proposal voting. Um, and I would say that I think it's really important for companies as they look ahead to 2021 that they review those large investor voting policies specifically around ENS topics, whether it's board related, um, board diversity related, uh, or, you know, an environmental issue. Um, just so that they're prepared for for what to expect from some of their large investors, and, and these guys are right. Yeah. And these guys these guys actually have a lot of clout, but they're yes. they're not a monolith, is what you're saying. No, yeah, it's, it's, it's evolving, and um, I think it's it's very much something that companies should be aware of um, in terms of you know the vote policies, taking a look at their vote outcomes from the past year if they did have a shareholder proposal. If they are expecting to receive a shareholder proposal for 2021, you know, how, how has that proposal fared at other companies in their same sector? Mm. Um, you know, how have investors voted on that in the past? I think there's, there's certainly a lot of data out there that can help inform companies so that they're better prepared for 2021 as we do see sustainability and environmental related proposals as well as diversity proposals really evolving in the future. So climate change, diversity, another significant ESG issue is human capital management. How do you see that developing? Certainly. Yeah. So I think the ongoing pandemic and renewed focus on society Hmm. um, in terms of, you know, racism and, and, you know, other issues, I think that will mean actually for next year, um, shareholder proposal landscape will have new types of proposals around human capital management, but social justice, anti-racism, as well as employee health and safety issues, um, supply chains, and just transparency around ESG reporting. I think the pandemic has certainly brought to light health and safety issues that, um, you know, just were went on scene before, and these have become an engagement topic for a lot of companies, uh, including those in sectors where they had a majority of their employee base working outside of the home. So, everything from retail to groceries, to even, you know, the bank space. So we'll likely see new angles for health and safety topics in the future when, again, that historically wasn't a key issue um, for investors. 
human capital management issues are not a new focus, but historically companies have been more qualitative in their discussion of the topics. And we expect that investors will actually be pushing for more quantitative information in order to assess and compare companies. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that companies should be prepared to discuss and engagement conversations with their um, investors, how they prioritize health and safety of employees. Um, and I think there may be questions either in the fall engagement period that we're in right now, or even questions leading up to the, the annual meeting or even questions presented at the annual meeting. I think investors are very much focused on the the impact of COVID-19 on human capital management issues. Richard, in terms of engagement, how are you noticing funds kind of ramping up efforts in that area, or are they just still kind of voting, uh, making their, their, their views known through proxy, or how do you see that panning out? Certainly, yeah. So investor engagement has ramped up significantly over the past, you know, few years, I think that most companies try to connect with their major investors on some on some level, whether it's a call during the off season or a call during the season. Most investors expect to hear from companies. Um, certainly, if if you're a large company, an investor does expect to hear from you, and you should expect to hear from the investor. In terms of topics related to ESG. In investor engagement conversations, you know, we manage a lot of off-season and in-season investor engagement campaigns for our clients. And some of the common ESG topics, themes that have emerged from, you know, the 2020 conversations that will likely continue into Mm -hmm. 2021. As I mentioned, the response to the pandemic, this, you know, includes a consideration for employee health and safety, this will likely come up in investor engagement conversations. Um, and we actually expect that in addition to employee health and safety, the response to the pandemic could also um, come out in the form of questions about compensation related matters. Um, investors will mm-hmm. be keen to know how companies adjusted executive compensation practices and programs as compared to broader employee compensation decisions in light of you know, pandemic-related financial performance. Um, and another ESG-related topic that we hear in engagement conversations is around the board's role in, in oversight of ESG topics, uh, ESG matters, I should say. Most companies, you know, at this point know to prepare to answer questions about ESG, and, and more recently, we've actually heard more specific questions about the board's role in oversight of, of ESG um, and I think that that will will continue um, into the future. And really understanding how the board is overseeing the ESG strategy, you know, what are the risks and opportunities and how are they integrated into the long-term strategy? Has the board been involved in identifying material ESG risks and allocating oversight to appropriate members or committees on the board? Mm-hmm. So that's that's something that, you know, we are definitely seeing How's that, how does that, that, Bridget, how yeah. does that um, sort of affect the, um, uh, the corporate secretary's role as kind of an uh, intermediary? That is a great segue into what else I was going to say in terms of engagement topics, which is actually ESG disclosure. I think corporate secretaries and general counsels and, and IR teams need to be aware of 
evolving practices and evolving investor expectations on ESG disclosure. Um, according to, I found this interesting, um, Governance and Accountability Institute found that 90% of S&P 500 companies have some sort of sustainability report out there. Hmm. That's up from 20% in 2011. So just in a 10-year time span, you know, that ESG disclosure has really um, just grown significantly. And I think companies really should be aware of, you know, how they are positioning their ESG message in the market through ESG disclosure. And that's related to the board's oversight, but that also does, you know, fall on to members within the corporate secretary's group department on, you know, what they are going to do. And then certainly in light of statements from BlackRock and State Street, we believe that companies that are considered laggers when it comes to ESG disclosure will be producing some sort of report in the next three to five years to meet that investor pressure. Um, so that's, that's definitely something that the corporate secretary can play a role in. Hmm. Um, I would also say related to a com- related to sort of conversations investors are having with companies and boards would be around diversity and inclusion topics. DNI has been a topic on a lot of investors' agendas. It's, it's really not uncommon for a company that has an, a board that's considered under diverse to be asked questions about diversity matters. Certainly it's an area of focus for a lot of companies. Um, and with regards to companies that have made progress, you know, they want to, provide disclosure around that. I, in light of the social climate and focus on this in the U.S., there is an increased need for boards to be involved in the oversight of diversity issues. So boards may want to consider asking themselves, you know, does my company have a director of DNI? Do they know what their mandates are? What are the specifics of their reach within the company? And then in addition, you know, there's been a, a larger focus placed on diversity data over the past year. And it's we saw it somewhat in the shareholder proposals presented at the 2020 proxy season. We expect there to be more focus on diversity data in 2021. Mm-hmm. And investors, you know, are also keen to know how boards are involved in, in, in that sense of, you know, compiling the diversity data and, and what the data says about the company. Hmm. You know, Bridget, in, in terms of, in terms of just sort of company risks, ESG risks, uh, these things make sense, but there are now concrete risks to directors themselves professionally. Um, can you talk about that? Certainly. So when we looked at the investor vote outcomes for the 2020 process, I looked on the individual level. You know, I noted that BlackRock was least supportive of the climate-related proposals um, of the major investors that we looked at. When we took a closer look at their um, some of the reports that they put out about their voting, they actually noted that they voted. Um, you know, their their votes on climate to date has actually been largely executed by voting against directors, and that will likely continue into next year. Uh, so layered on top of what we're seeing in terms of, you know, rising levels of shareholder support for proposals, I think that directors should be aware of the increased risk of receiving a vote against from a BlackRock or another investor focused on this that's, you know, um, for ESG and 
looking closely at directors is actually State Street. So in January of 2020, they released, you know, the firm's annual letter to directors and their ESG oversight framework for directors specifically. So in that letter, they said that for 2020, they State Street would be taking action against board members at companies within the S&P 500 that they categorized as ladder, laggards under their R-Factor program. Hmm. The R-Factor program is a proprietary uh, system that State Street has built, which basically classifies companies as laggards based on their percentile ranking compared to industry peers. Um, So that was the focus for 2020 was on the S&P 500. And then beyond beginning in 2022, the voting action will expand to other companies. So we wanted to know, that letter came out in January of 2020. We had the 2020 proxy season. What was the outcome? What is the risk to directors as we can see it from voting records of S&P 500 directors? Mm-hmm. Um, and our voting analysis confirmed that State Street did vote against or withhold on almost twice as many directors as it did in 2019. Um, this is actually the first annual decrease in their support rate over the past four years. As high as State Street's overall support was this year, which was 92% support for S&P 500 directors, State Street did vote against or withhold on at least one director at 217 different companies in the S&P 500, which is 43% of the S&P 500 meetings they voted on this past season. 2021 will certainly be a big ramp up year for companies outside of the S&P 500 to meet State Street's expectations you know, going into that 2022 time period where they have said that they would expand. So in terms of risks for directors, you know, their their election could be on the line, you know, if they are not, you know, having clear oversight of these ESG issues and it, it will impact um, their elections in the future. ESG has got personal. I think I think that's uh, that's finally <laughs> the way it might work. Bridget Rosati, uh, thanks for joining us on uh, Governance Matters. Thank you so much for having me. And that's your Governance Matters podcast. Our thanks to Georgeson's Bridget Rosati and Federated Hermes' Martin Jarzabowski. We hope you'll join us again next month when we'll explore how the recent U.S. election results might further change the focus on ESG risks going forward. See you next year. Happy holidays, everyone.